During the war, clothing was rationed. So, flouncy dresses uh, billowing with folds and luxurious excess yards of velvets and satins were out. Instead, here in Britain we had utility clothing, which was cut uh, according to government-approved designs, which made strict and sensible use of durable, boring fabrics. Utility clothing was uh, stamped with the famous CC logo, standing for Civilian Clothing, which looks like two Pac-Mans. Or is it Pac-Men? And then, with the war over, in 1947, uh, the designer Christine Dior rebelled against it all. No more Pac-Man. No more military looks and manly cuts and plain, frumpy, sensible skirts. He revealed his now famous new look, which was all about glamour and femininity. Its signature style being a jacket with a tiny nipped-in waist, which then billows out into a rich full skirt. It was a kickback against the sartorial gloom of the war years, and it was unashamedly glam. But you know that we're not here to talk about fashion, so don't switch off. We are about to go nuclear. Paris gave us the new look in 1947, but then America, in the early 50s, presented what they also called the new look. But it had nothing to do with beauty. The new look was what the Eisenhower administration called their new defence policy, and their new approach to fighting the Cold War. And one of the key strands of the new look, and one of the most controversial, was the very frightening doctrine of massive retaliation, which we'll look at today. try to condense the new look down into one line, it was, how can we defend America and our allies without going bankrupt? One of the solutions offered under the new look was to rely very heavily on nuclear weapons to bring them right to the fore. Instead of having them in the back pocket as a terrible, dreadful, almost unthinkable last resort, Why not lay them out on the table and say openly and unashamedly, yeah, we have them, and yeah, we could use them. This made sense uh, according to the new look, because America at this early stage in the Cold War, the early 50s, still had massive superiority in nuclear weaponry. It also made sense because it was cheaper. Yes, the nuclear option was also a way to save money. If America and her allies had tried to match the massive Red Army and, of course, the huge military manpower of communist China, then they could be heading for economic ruin. Or at least they might not be able to maintain the standard of living they enjoyed in the West. They couldn't match the communists in conventional weapons or boots on the ground, but they could certainly, oh God, yes, certainly match them and surpass them 
in nuclear weaponry. So the new look was, as they said, more bang for your buck. Or as the Secretary of State, John Foster Dulles, phrased it, maximum deterrent at bearable cost. The new look was a big change in direction for the American government, which had previously organised its foreign policy according to the Truman Doctrine, which said that America would assist any allies who were facing communist aggression by giving them support, but not necessarily military support. It might take the form of financial aid. But the important thing about the Truman Doctrine was that America was announcing its intention to be involved there would be no return to its pre-war isolationism. The new look represented a big change because it went far beyond the Truman Doctrine, particularly in its notorious idea of massive retaliation, which said America could respond to any, any communist aggression, no matter how tiny, with massive nuclear strikes. And these would not necessarily be confined to the designated war zone. For example, the Korean War. Try that again, massive retaliation hinted, and we might strike Moscow, not the Korean Peninsula. Massive retaliation means we can use anything and we can use it anywhere. So just don't try it. Now, that's massive retaliation explained in very blunt terms. We'll look at it in more detail now, look at its obvious flaws, and also listen to Secretary of State John Foster Dulles when he spared that the media had seized on the terrifying idea of massive retaliation, when he said later it was just one option amongst many. So Dulles gave a speech in January 1954, where he elaborated on the new look and the concept of massive retaliation. He said, America must not always be reacting to communist moves. In all the flare-ups and wars which had happened since 1945, he said the commies had started it. They had chosen the place and the time and, yes, the means of fighting. All the West was doing was reacting and meeting them on the ground they'd chosen, forever reacting to the communist aggression, always put on the defensive. And if you are constantly reacting to aggression, which could happen anywhere, then you have to be constantly alert and constantly aware and constantly ready to move, permanently tooled up for the fight. That is draining and it is expensive. Dulles argued America should rely more on deterrent power than defensive power. He said, quote, This is accepted practice so far as our local communities are concerned. We keep locks on the doors of our homes, but we don't have armed guards in every home. We rely principally on a community security system so well equipped to catch and punish any who break in and steal that, in fact... Would-be aggressors are generally deterred. That is the modern way of getting maximum deterrent at bearable cost. 
So he was arguing that uh, locks and armed guards might keep out the enemy, but it's bloody labour-intensive and costly. Better to rely on the justice system, which lets the baddies know in advance that they'll be caught and they'll be punished. Better to deter the burglary than defend against it with locks and guards. A lot cheaper too. Maximum deterrent at bearable cost. So, what was this uh, proposed maximum deterrent? The nuclear bomb, of course, uh, but the nuclear bomb cranked up to the max, up to the level of massive retaliation. It said, uh, just you try and creep up the garden path, just you dare try to crack open the window, put one single sorry little foot across my threshold and we will retaliate massively. A huge nuclear strike, no matter how small your aggression is. The idea of massive retaliation is perhaps best explained by likening communist aggression to an octopus. I found this in the New York Times archive, um, access to which is funded by my kind patrons, and it said uh, in reporting Dulles's speech, quote, he made clear that the United States was not going to disperse its strength all around the world or follow the policy of hitting the octopus wherever its tentacles lashed out along the periphery of the Red Empire. Instead, Mr Dulles indicated, our power and our policy were to be changed so that the octopus might be struck at the head. So if those communist tentacles slither and creep into Korea or West Berlin, you smash it squarely on the head in Moscow, bash its brains in and then the million tentacles elsewhere will wither and die. Now, the new look wasn't proposing to rely wholly on the nuclear deterrent. There would still be, as they say, boots on the ground, American and allied troops in Europe, even if they were just there for their symbolic and psychological value. But let's not pretend that they could have held back a massive invasion by the Red Army. The idea was, have your highly visible military presence and let it be known that your boots on the ground are backed up by the threat of massive retaliation. You might be a a wee guy, but you have a gigantic, rabid big brother and you can just whistle and he'll jump in and support you in the fight. So the idea of massive retaliation, it freed America from having to be constantly ready for communist aggressions which would flare up anywhere and also freed them from having to always jump to the communist tune. No longer could they set the time and the place, start a war in Korea, but we might choose to strike back at Moscow. You no longer get to choose, comrade. Of course, there were plenty of criticisms of massive retaliation, and uh, in his defence, Dulles uh, wrote an article for Foreign Affairs in 1954 stressing that massive retaliation was just one option offered by the new look. America, at this stage, was in an era of nuclear plenty, 
and had nukes of all shapes and sizes, from tiny tacticals to massive thermonuclear monsters. So really, he stressed, we should think of it as flexible retaliation. But everyone just focused on <laughs> the terrifying massive retaliation, which is a concept uh, so huge and gargantuan and devastating and over the top that it was easy to attack. The first argument against it was that of ambiguity, and we've seen that pop up in the news recently concerning the war in Ukraine. Joe Biden has been criticised for stating plainly and clearly at the outset that NATO will not get directly involved in Ukraine. And he was clear on why, because that would mean military engagement with Russia, which could lead to World War III, to nuclear war. But some have criticised him for being so open and honest about his intentions. If Putin is sure that NATO will not get directly involved, then wouldn't this embolden him? Would it not be wiser for Biden to leave a bit of ambiguity in his statements? Sure, he might be totally clear and private with his advisors that there will be no direct action, but does he really have to tell Putin again and again? Bring in a bit of strategic ambiguity, some have argued. Where's the benefit in telling the enemy exactly what you will do, and, by the same reasoning, what you will not do? Well, the same argument applied to massive retaliation. You're telling the communists exactly what will happen. The senator for California in 1954, William Noland, argued that we need ambiguity, saying, quote, The most effective policy is to say that in a local flare-up, we will take whatever action the national interest demands and let the men in the Kremlin worry about what that may be. It also limits your choices in a war or dispute. If you have crowed and stamped and roared that you will unleash massive retaliation, then you've cut away all other options. If the war proceeds and you do anything less than massive retaliation, then you look weak. All talk and no action. Kennedy made this argument in the early 60s, saying, quote, We have been driving ourselves into a corner where the only choice is all or nothing at all. World devastation or submission. You could also argue that a policy of massive retaliation actually invites your enemy to attack you. If they are hatching an invasion plan and they know that you will massively retaliate against them, well, they might be tempted to turn their fire on you first in the hope of disabling your capacity to massively retaliate. We might also criticise massive retaliation by saying it had a limited shelf life. It was only possible as an American policy in the 50s as they were so far ahead of the Soviets in nuclear weaponry. After all, you can only threaten massive retaliation if you're quite confident the enemy can't hit back with the same. Once the Soviets caught up, then massive retaliation dissolves in the face of mad, mutually assured destruction. If you hit us, then we'll hit you with the same. In 1955, Churchill foresaw this scenario, 
this period of atomic stalemate where both sides will eventually have an equal amount of terrifying nuclear weapons and so will be too afraid to wage war against the other. In this scenario, Churchill said, safety would be the sturdy child of terror. Massive retaliation fell out of favour for these various reasons, and of course, for the very practical reason that the Soviets caught up, and they caught up with nuclear weaponry enough that they were able to develop a second strike capability. Meaning that even if America did hit them with massive retaliation, they would still have the capacity to launch a second strike. A retaliation of their own. And next week we'll look at where nuclear strategy went after the demise of massive retaliation. You'll see that I made great use of newspaper archives in this episode, for which I thank my patrons. Part of my Patreon income uh, pays for access to various online archives. And let me say hello and welcome to this week's new patrons. Matt Penfold, Rosie McDowell, Aileen O'Hara, Dave Smith, Marie Curie, Princess Toadstool, Vicky Radford and Ellen Calloway. And thank you to Heather Parker for increasing her pledge. That is a lot of new patrons. It's my busiest month so far and I'm very lucky to have you all supporting my work. I know that. Thank you. If you want to join my Patreon and donate to the podcast each month, please take a look at patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. And in other news, my book is now being edited. I got uh, notes back from the editor, so I need to return to that now and um, work on (laughs) improving it, nipping and tucking and tidying, and with the editor's help, making it into a better book. And you may also be interested to know that Seri Ploke, the Ukrainian historian, has a new nuclear book out, which I'll be reviewing for The Spectator. It's called Atoms and Ashes, and it's about uh, various nuclear disasters that have happened. You might know his name from the recent book Chernobyl, History of a Tragedy. So it's brilliant to see another one from him. Remember, you can find me on Twitter at Julie A. McDowell, or on Facebook as Nuclear Britain, or on my website, juliemcdowell.com. So thank you all for listening, and I'll be back next week.